Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We ask if the newly launched Williams can turn around the team's decline and whether or not its drivers are up to it, even if the car is. The 2018 Formula 1 season is now underway, kind of, with both Williams and Haas having launched their cars. As is the style of the times, both launched virtually, with Williams having the unusual distinction of holding a car launch without physically having a car present. But they did have a very nice turntable 3D animation that uh, showed plenty of detail, actually. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me to delve into what we learned from these launches first is Stuart Codling. Now, you seem to be enjoying the launch as a representative of F1 Racing magazine, which has a fine cover feature on the new car this month. I enjoyed it a lot more once I'd unburdened myself of the two boxes of magazines that I'd been imposed upon to bring. It's one of those typical Anthony Rowlinson stitch-ups where he goes, oh, you're going to the launch. You can take two boxes of mags, can't you? Two boxes! So, yes, I unburdened myself of them. Everyone seemed to enjoy them. Uh, It was quite a coup and... Many thanks to Williams for sharing with us under strict embargo the image of their car. And, uh, you know, as, and as you guys know, we, we kept it a secret even from you. You had no inkling, did you, of what we had planned until you went ba-doom and tweeted it on the night. Yeah, thanks, Cuddies. I knew about it, but I know all. You know everything. Well, you're, you're <laughs> omniscient. Uh, also joining me is Lawrence Barreto. Now, 
You were there until the bar was being dismantled, I believe. So did you enjoy a few martinis, courtesy of the Williams main sponsor? Um, I was there until the bar was being dismantled. You've got to make the most of these launches in, in this uh, time of year when there's nothing going on. You want to talk to as many people as you can, get as much news as you can. Um, and I did have a few martinis to, to celebrate the end of the evening. So you join us well fortified. I'm in pretty good shape. I've just made you a round of teas. And rightly so. Lawrence. Is there any reason you're here? Lawrence, I, I, I must know this. So, are, are you a Martini Rosso or a Martini Bianco, man? Uh, a Martini Bianco. No, Does that surprise you? The colours? red martini. Well, I don't know. It, it was very unchic for a while. It was considered to be a bit 1970s, a little bit, you know, Leonard Rossiter spilling his drink over Joan Collins in, in the adverts. <laughs> Uh, but I, I, I don't mind uh, vermouth-style uh, fortified drinks. I, I'm very happy to drink red or white man- martini. Also, no- Noirly Pra. If you visit the Noirly Pra distillery in the south of France, they have uh, one that's only sold at the distillery called Ombre, which you can keep in the fridge and serve neat. It Ooh. makes a fine aperitif. The good thing is now we don't sound like we've been paid off by uh, by Williams' sponsors to talk about it. I know very little about Martini. I'm not a great drinker. What's the difference between the... Between Martini and Noali Pra? It's just vermouth, really. Just a either, either a cocktail additive or if you... You know, you, you can take the vanilla approach and just let it down with a bit of lemonade or you can put it into a more ambitious cocktail. Some people even mix uh, the red vermouths with... Um, other spirits such as whiskey before letting it down. I didn't know you were so well versed in uh, in mixology. In cocktailology, well, as as you probably know from when I've uh, rolled into the office looking replete after a weekend where Mrs. Codling and I have had a bibulous lunch at the Hawksmoor Steakhouse in London, we we like to kick off with a cocktail, and there's one particular. Uh, one I like called the old fashioned, which does have a sort of vermouth and and whiskey mix in it uh, along with a massive ice cube well there we go wow cocktail as theater now cobbers the williams launch the williams fw41 of course williams rather irritatingly skipped the 39 designation last year so they went from 38 to 40 to celebrate their anniversary but has that thrown you off slightly minor quibble what did you make of the car or the virtual car i thought it was very interesting there was a lot more detail on that render uh, which was shared with the F1 Racing cover than we saw on the Haas reveal uh, earlier. And to me, the the car concept seems to have changed massively, which arguably was necessary. I remember last year at the 40th anniversary celebration at Silverstone, Patrick Head marching up to Alex Wurtz and saying, I've looked at the 2017 Williams and there are so many stupidities on it, it beggars belief. Uh and they have gone for a new concept, as you might expect, having taken on uh, Dirk De Beer from Ferrari as chief aerodynamicist, as, as well as Paddy Lowe. And it kind of looks like he's been getting his elbows out. Gary Anderson noticed something I hadn't about the quite high suspension pickups, which he thinks will have a detrimental effect or a possibly detrimental effect on uh, tire grip in certain circumstances and it seems that uh, some things have been sacrificed at the altar of aerodynamics and downforce which you know could be a good or a bad thing just it's just a different mix really I think what Paddy Lowe's had to do since coming into the team he didn't start work till March last year is really as the technical leader evaluate the priorities of focus and I think what I saw in that car is an understanding that actually aerodynamics does have to be your your main priority area because aerodynamics downforce 
is a is a benefit in many areas it's not just grip and performance it, it helps you work the tires it has all sorts of areas that it can that it can benefit you with so it's clear that the the dials have been moved a little bit and as paddy himself pointed out sometimes aero problems are not only aero problems and it's how that impacts the whole rest of the car and from my understanding paddy Lowe and in particular dirk de beer actually who not only was he at ferrari but also he was a key part of enstone lotus when they were very strong in 12 and 13 they've both played a very important role in terms of just integrating the different technical parts of the company and i think what we've seen in the car we don't know how it'll work so they never know they may have got it wrong but it's clear that there has been a significant change in terms of how they're working together what they're doing and that's manifested in the car well you can't argue against the fact that the previous low drag concept they've been pursuing it with ever diminishing returns and i'm sure you've done the maths to express that i've got some splendid numbers here so of course 2014 they were third in the championship with 320 points so they've gone third third fifth fifth in the championship with an ever diminishing number of points so if you look at it 14 to 15 19.7% loss in points 15 to 16 46.3% and then 16 to 17 39.9% drop off in points and that's also reflected in the in the overall performance if you look at their at their pace using the the percentage pace deficit averages we use which is just a useful guide based on the fastest individual laps every car sets on a grand prix weekend 100.895 percent in 2014 and by the time you get to 2017 it's 102.5 so on a one minute 40 lap that's a 2.5 second difference compared to a nine tenths difference to, to the front so this is an absolutely inarguable and clear trend that they had to do something to arrest and even if they've done well with this new car it might only mitigate that that decline even so it's uh it's good but you know, we still need to see just how big an impact this will have on where Williams is. The the other thing we should bring in at this point is that Williams have a tradition of borrowing design concepts to good effect from other teams. You know, you look at the 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 great Williams of years past from kind of year zero really. Patrick Head was great at identifying innovations other people had made and then actually improving on them. It's uh, it's, it's that great tradition of British engineering. You know, James Watt might have invented the steam engine but it was people like george stevenson that actually did something useful with it rather than having it sitting on a table going uh patrick head and frank durney saw what lotus were doing with ground effect and found a way to harness it properly whereas when when williams then accelerated into their pomp through 1980 uh lotus colin chapman said i want more downforce more downforce and lotus went totally the wrong way with ground effect so they've always been good at doing that magpie thing but then Im- improving until i'd say maybe the, the the late 2000s 2010s when certain williams cars started to look as if they'd kind of taken the supermarket sweep design philosophy and someone had walked down the grid pointing at bits of various cars and saying, oh, I like that. Can we have that? I want that. I want I want the Red Bull pull rod suspension. Can I have that diffuser? This nose. Yeah, put it all in one car. So I was slightly concerned to see uh, various bits of design philosophies from other cars on the new Williams because certainly the, the barge board treatment is something that isn't a magic bullet in and of itself. It's only something that finesses and optimises a concept that has to be working across the complete car. But the positive thing there is Dirk De Beer, the head of Aero, he was at Ferrari when that was being designed and worked on. So 
it's not just a question, as you say, of bolting something onto a car. He will understand how Ferrari was integrating that into the aero philosophy. So if the job's been done correctly, then it should have been been applied correctly. And I guess this is just symptomatic, Lawrence, of where Williams is. It needs to kind of catch up with its rivals. And at the moment, Ferrari's not really a Williams rival. Williams's rivals are more in the mid-pack, but even compared to some of the other teams that are around them, they need to make this progression in terms of complexity. I think this could be a really interesting point in Williams's history. Um, they're not renowned for taking risks, but they've obviously taken this decision to go down this path. And I think it was a point in which they had to. You, you just talked about the, the declining points they've scored in, in the last four years. And I think this was the time when they had no real choice because otherwise there's going to keep dropping down the field and we've been we've all been here before and uh, not so long ago um I think it's very exciting that they've kind of allowed themselves to take this kind of approach um as you said Paddy's at least had this time to take a very strategic approach to look at the people that he's got um structure the, the team in the way that he hopes it will operate um very well this time this time around and uh, you know they were talking about two seconds was it that gap that they want to try and close that's uh, that's a massive gap but I think at least they're, they're trying to take a bold approach to trying to close that gap. We saw when the Haas came out, they talked about it being an evolution. Every car does is, in effect, an evolution. But Paddy said this one's quite different. So I think at least they're trying to take this step to try and close that gap rather than just making making those baby steps. And it's all a question of ensuring they're doing things for a reason. And it appears that Williams has a, a decent mindset. There's reasons for what's being done, as you said Codders it's not just about sort of pick and mixing various ideas because it's how these things interact that decides how effective your your car is but it's good to see Paddy Lowe has been able to come in and say right this is what we want to do this is how we're going to achieve it and this is how this is going to come together to produce a car that that fulfills the potential of Williams and ultimately I asked him what would be Williams's definition of a, a target for this year of success for them and he basically said it's about closing the raw lap time gap to the front which he said over last season was about two and a half seconds and he said that almost regardless of where that puts them so if they're one and a half seconds off but they slip to seventh in the championship rather than fifth that's still by that definition actually a, a success so it's all about getting Williams longer term back into a position where it can compete where it historically thinks it should be now whether there's a little bit of hubris in that in Williams and it thinks that just because it's won so many Grand Prix and so many world championships in the past it can get back to that so it's a long way to go it at least says that they're setting their sights on that and they've set a pathway that can at least gradually move them move them back that way but then again Williams is the team of full storms isn't it we've had so many full storms over the past 20 years the last world championship win was in 1997 so it's very much a yeah, all this looks looks good, it all makes sense, it's encouraging, and they're certainly not making the same mistakes, but we can't be sure until the car hits the track and starts competing whether it's actually been been successful. And that's the, the classic thing, isn't it? The proof of the pudding is in the lap time. Indeed, and I suppose this is probably the time when we should turn our attention to the people charged with driving it because they will be the ultimate arbiters of how fast it goes and... and a lot hangs on them being able to extract the maximum from it. Exactly. Well, the uh, the bit holding the steering wheel and hitting the pedals is is the the point where all functions of car and team meet, isn't it? Now, Lawrence, Sergei Sorokin, Lance Stroll, 
you can make a strong case it's the weakest driver lineup on the grid and there's plenty of strong driver lineups and it's certainly in the um, among the weakest in terms of the experience both good drivers though now Claire Williams said yesterday that the the pay driver tag puts negativity around the driver that shouldn't be there anymore now there's no doubt that Stroll and Sorok and they are capable drivers but they do owe their positions to the financial packages so what do you make of the direction they've gone there and also the way they're publicly trying to confront these these pay driver accusations and critiques well i think if you ask lance or sergey about the financial backing that they bring i don't think either of them would deny it that they'd be honest and open and say that they bring a package with them and they would probably say that other drivers on the grid do exactly the same maybe to a lesser or greater extent um the team is trying to tread this fine line between admitting that they they need to take a driver that brings some sort of funding and that they want to show that they're a proper racing team so they want to take a driver that is the best available driver. Part of the problem that Williams found themselves in was that they left it way too late to pick a driver last year anyway so that the pool in which they could pick from was smaller. So it's it's a bit tougher for them to, to, to stick to that argument if they pick the best available driver. Looking at what they've got, if you've got a driver who is in the say the top two of the testing that you've done and brings money why would you not pick him over the driver the other driver in that top two who has uh, a smaller financial budget so you can see from the business side of things why they've done it it's it's an interesting when claire was talking yesterday about the pay, pay driver tag and she brought in fernando alonso and the fact that santander follow him around and then rightly said that it's a very different scenario She's trying to she's trying to explain Williams's understanding, but it's just a bit difficult when you can see how much money Lance is bringing, how much money Sergey's bringing, and how important that is to their budget. So it's always going to be a difficult argument for Williams, and they're going to be fighting that all season. I do find the argument about drivers like Alonso and partners that come with them a rather fatuous yeah, it, position. Empty on. camp, basically. Exactly. You know, I understand why they're going for that, but it, it's I think it just becomes almost meaningless to to say that kind of thing. There are a few things in this scenario that um, have kind of surprised and disappointed me about William's strategy. Um, and, and, and by strategy, I mean the whole, uh, the whole end-to-end business of the decision-making process and how they've explained it. So let, let's take the decision-making process about the drivers, which, as, as Lawrence just alluded to, was badly executed. Let, let's face it, they... They, they pursued one strategy, which was that Robert Kubica was the golden boy and they had no plan B uh, until quite late in the day when they realised that Robert wasn't going to be quite ready or quite fast enough in the car. And that was Abu Dhabi after the end of the season. And that's when they were put in the invidious position of having to look around to see who else was available. And fair play to him, um, Sergei Sorokin, did do a good job at that test, good enough to convince them that he would be all right for the car and he would do a job. Plus, he brings many millions of good reasons in terms of dollars that they can invest in development. So, that said, why do they not then make that virtue in their launch? Instead of mumbling and gibbering and coming out with inconsequential cant about... Oh, he, you know, he's a good driver. He's come third in what was GP2 twice. Words actually spoken by Claire Williams last night. Instead of saying that, just say, okay, he brings money. He did a good job for us in testing. And the money he brings can be put into car development, which is good for our long-term development as a team. And for us, as an independent team, 
the the team always has to come first and the drivers uh, are just drivers and our drivers are aware of that they know that the team is 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 bigger than them and that they are part of a grand epic tapestry of history that sweeps back 40 years instead we get this nonsense about coming third twice in what was gp2 and saying renault took sergey on as a development driver renault took on Carmen Jorda as a development driver. That's hardly winning an Oscar now, is it? I, I just don't think weak arguments like that should be brought out because they can just be shot down very quickly. Whereas if you stick to your guns and say, OK, we're taking drivers with a budget. That is not a bad thing. Here's why. You just ad- address all those criticisms. Half of last night's press conference could have just been headed off at the pass. All those questions about pay drivers could have been just chased away straight off the bat just by taking it on directly and shutting them down. Instead, the thing dragged on and on with people taking pot shot after pot shot while the poor blokes were just standing there with their hands in their pockets. I think the point you make there makes sense because the argument as you laid it out is hard to disagree with. You can't say it's a disingenuous argument, it's a correct representation. Now, you can then get into the question about whether a team should prioritize the quality of driver over the financial impact that's a that's a business decision for for Williams and you can't say absolutely it's wrong I personally always tend towards what you might call the force India approach which is get the best drivers you possibly can in but force India is funded in a different way to Williams and Williams has to operate very very firmly as, as its own standalone business the encouraging thing for me is that it's not just money coming in to develop this year's car. There is some investment going on. This is something Williams hasn't talked about a great deal in terms of the factory and facilities and equipment. So that's something that has an effect not just on this year, but also downstream. And it's very clear that what Paddy Lowe's trying to do technically is get this team back to the back to the front. And I think in Paddy's mind, although obviously he won't articulate it this way because he, he toes the party line as well, he's thinking, well, yeah, this isn't the, the perfect driver lineup we've got there, but it's great for the finance. And if some of that goes into developing the car this year, but also some of that goes into developing the team in a wider sense, then you've got maybe a little bit of short-term pain for longer-term gain. And I think when it comes to the pay driver debates, people forget that it's not as if they're signing Sorokin and Stroll and then Claire Williams and all these people are running off to the bank with their hands full of money that they're going to spend on. Who knows what? It's all about the team working so i can see the rationale i find it interesting that williams aren't talking more about the fact what they're going to do with the money because that's just another way as Cody was, was suggesting earlier that they could just head this off at the past and say look okay fine we're taking the money but we're plowing it all into development we're looking at the long-term game we want to make sure that we're back up where we hope we are going to be in a few years time um SMP are saying that they're, they're talking about all the money they're putting in is going directly into car development. That's what they wanted that to happen. I think the interesting point for the future of Williams, if they continue this SMP relationship, is uh, Shrotkin's the first driver from that program to have really made it all the way to the top. So you can understand why they're going to want to keep pumping the money in or maybe throw all their back in behind him to, to show that the program works back home. If he even delivers half of what they were hoping this year they might throw even more money that's really good for Williams if they are going to do what you were just saying Ed is you know putting the money into the facilities and stuff it's going to take time um but Williams has been operating on this kind of Arsenal football club style business model for ages just making sure that they're they've got enough money coming in um and then trying to not maybe go for the best players but just buy within their means 
to change that way of thinking is going to take time. And as long as they've got this backing from SNP and it, the short can, can actually deliver on track, this actually might not be such a bad thing after all. And there's no guarantee that Sorokin and Stroll are going to be bad anyway. This this is but they an aren't assumption. Ba- they aren't bad drivers. Exactly. That's you know, clear. Stroll has demonstrated on at least two occasions last year that he is uh, skilled and able. He's he's made mistakes. Uh, he's been he's underperformed in qualifying, which I, I would argue has been the root of um, his struggles so far. But he's he's demonstrated speed, even if he wasn't always as quick as Felipe Massa. He was decent. Sorokin has yet to prove himself. So I, this this is why I speak of the need to move the narrative away from just talking about the budget they bring, because otherwise the, the desk of underachievement and their ilk will just be harping on about that until the season begins and for the for the first few races, because it's it's all they know to talk about. The, uh, the, the thing a team has to do PR nowadays, uh, PR-wise nowadays, is to throw out a few more narrative bones that some of the idiots can go and chew on instead of harping on about the same old tosh. Ultimately, in the case of Lance Stroll, he had seven points finishes last year. Ideally, there should have been more in there. That wasn't a stellar rookie season, but you have to, with rookie drivers, look at the high points and then as you go on through your first few seasons, it's down to them to join the dots of peak performance. Lance Stroll's a European F3 champion. He's a F4 champion. He's not Max Verstappen, but there's no reason why he can't be a very capable, decent Grand Prix driver. And as we saw in races where he didn't qualify so well, Mexico, for example, when he got track position through a little bit of good fortune, he delivered a, a very decent sixth place. So Stroll can be can be a decent driver. He's got to up that points finishing rate, assuming the car's still capable of consistent points finishes. Because if you look at the, the natural kind of rivals of Williams, the Force Indias, they've got very, very good at delivering double points finishes now. And that's why they were miles away in the championship. And if you look at the points gap, it's actually bigger perhaps than the performance gap would would uh, hint at. Sorokin, he's a he's a good driver. On his on his day, he's been very good. A few too many mistakes in, in GP2, but a decently quick racing driver and a what you would call a worthy Grand Prix driver. So it's the classic thing, isn't it? It always tends to be binary in people's minds. Either you're not a pay driver or you're a pay driver. And if you're in the pay driver bucket, then you're automatically considered to be Taki Inui or any one of these guys without much of a track record who is purely in due to the finances they bring to the team. But this isn't kind of a, an auction to the highest bidder because there would have been drivers out there with even more resources to to pile into it, albeit many not with the necessary super license points. So it's kind of it's in the grey areas for, for Williams in terms of that that spectrum and it's it's okay. It's okay what they've got. But I personally would be much happier with a stronger driver lineup because you know that you're gonna nail those results and the performance of the car week in, week out. And that probably for me would be say you have a stroll or a Sorokin as the sort of number two driver if you like and then a really established, consistent performer to spearhead the team. I think the one thing that they do have with Shirokin is a driver who clearly is going to put everything he's got into it. Um, he said on stage yesterday that he's been in the factory five days a week for the last seven weeks. Uh, for the people that I spoke to, they were leaving the office uh, at Grove before before him. And he was the first one in in the mornings, like he was properly putting in. And you can be a pay driver and not turn up and just, you know, just to, you know, take the opportunity that you're given with him. But he seems to want to take this opportunity that he's been given. Um, I know that when the team, um, when um, he started coming to the factory and he was looking at trying to get a place to stay, the team kind of suggested a couple of areas that he could move to. 
um, that had a lot going on, but was maybe 40 minutes an hour away. And he ended up getting a flat about 20 minutes drive away from the factory because he was so keen to, you know, to be in part of the mix. And it's very important to him to try and make the best of this opportunity. And I think that that's a massive thing to point out that most people might not know. It's a very professional outlook, isn't it? Because the elite sportsmen will tell you that fail to prepare, prepare to fail. Is, is the mantra they live by. The body language was already also quite interesting last night, wasn't it, Lawrence? As the drivers came on stage, um, Lance somehow still seems to look slightly ill at ease on a stage in front of people, hands thrust in pockets, leaning against the wall, mouth on autopilot. He did, he did that Lance thing where um, his his mouth just sort of seems to move autonomously, and he talks about the journey, and he doesn't look like his brain is actually really engaging. It's as if the interviewer has just pressed play, and stuff is spooling out. Whereas Sorokin looked more engaged. Um, he only had his thumbs in his pockets. He was looking out at the audience, and he was listening to the questions and answering them as best he could while engaging with the interviewer and the audience he looked more he looked more of a veteran than um stroll did which which was quite interesting there was also the robert kibitzer shaped elephant in the room <laughs> standing next to them the the third driver he says he's going to have three fp1 outings as well as testing i think he said he's going to do the spanish grand prix and austrian grand prix and another one and it's abu dhabi oh it's abu dhabi yeah. is it okay therefore not many not as many as we'd maybe hope for from Kibitza, but obviously he's the driver everyone's looking at, excited because of what he's done in the past. Lawrence, do you think Kibitza being there is a bit of a a distraction almost for the drivers in that they know that a large number of people in that room will have wanted Kibitza in one of those seats? I think he, you could see when he was talking on stage, he felt a bit awkward. Um, and the line of questioning was kind of suggesting, are you going to mentor these guys? And he was... He didn't quite know how to deal with it. So he kind of said, well, I don't really want to force my, you know, force my teaching upon them. Um, I'm here to help if they want to help. And that is kind of what my role is. But I understand that if you don't want me here you know, and you don't want to listen to what I've got to say, then you don't have to. So I think I think that's going to be tricky all season, especially if the drivers struggle. I think I think Lance and Sago don't get on with the car that well early on and they're, they're on the back foot straight away. I think people are going to start talking about the, the Robert Kubica factor and thinking, well, he's just there. He can stand in. Um, Robert will know, as he said on stage, that he feels that he can do this job. So he's going to be pushing all the way through this year, whatever he says, to prove to Williams that he can get that race seat. Now, I know both drivers have um, what the team term is multi-year deals, but anything can happen if they really want to move things around. And so the young drivers are going to know that Robert's just basically there on their shoulder watching over them. So it could work either way. I'm not sure how it's going to turn out. The, The timing of those tests, well, the timing of those FP1 outings, quite interesting isn't it it's both the carrot and the stick you've got the two mid uh the mid-season fp1s as sort of the the carrot for robert and then the end of season abu dhabi one as the stick for the other two it'll be an interesting little subplot through the year because i think everybody wants to see robert kibitzer back racing a grand prix car and it'll be good to see him on track on on grand prix weekends but for williams they've committed to the two drivers i think Sorokin and Stroll will probably surprise people overall this year because I think they're both very capable drivers and I think it's only fair we let them develop and learn at their own rate. Stroll's, what, 19? Sorokin's 22. So they're, they're still young and they're still worthy Grand Prix drivers. Maybe not the absolute best lineup Williams could have put together, but it's only fair to give them give them a chance. If Lance Stroll 
delivers an identical season to last year, then that will be a, a real failure because he won't have he won't have kicked on. And last year wasn't a brilliant rookie year by any means, but it was it it was it had some good high points. So we can only judge them by what they do, and it's the usual thing. It doesn't matter how you get there; it's what you do once you're there. So that's what we will be judging them on. Now, Codders, if you had to make a prediction, where are you expecting Williams to be existing on the grid this year in, in the championship? Based well, on almost no information. Based on almost no information. Should we take fifth as our baseline? Yeah, fifth the last two years, so that's yeah. kind of their, their starting point. Yeah, so let us indeed take fifth as the baseline. Well, they'll certainly not want to get any worse. The question is can they beat the next team up, which I think realistically is going to be Force India again, who have continuity of design philosophy, continuity of drivers. They seem to have managed to get the drivers to work together to some extent. Peace peace has broken out. And um, Otmar Zafnauer of Force India said to me last week that they are possibly going to be a little bit more relaxed. They're going to relax their grip on their drivers slightly this year and they but they will maintain the threats that were on the table uh post spa last year in, in case it breaks out again but that means that the in all likelihood we will see force india double scoring where possible so that is going to be a tricky mountain for williams to climb even before we look at moving any closer to the front which means red bull red bull has to be a, a prospect for third maybe we can maybe expect Mercedes and Ferrari to be first and second but that's by no means guaranteed Ferrari could have a terrible winter you know they've they've lost a few of the key architects of the 2017 car that was so good we we saw that they managed to sustain some development last year so that's promising but they might not necessarily be in the mix and of course we have to think about the people coming up from behind Renault have been adding resource, have got a very, very strong driver lineup. McLaren now with uh, the same engine as Red Bull, eager to test themselves against Red Bull, two very, very good drivers. That could also be a realistic prospect for fourth or fifth. So it could even come to pass that Mercedes, sorry, that Williams go backwards. I think looking at it, seventh is kind of almost the sort of the null position for them in that I think provided Renault don't do something very bad with their engine. And there are some slightly concerning mutterings about reliability levels. And I think it could be quite a tricky season again for, for Renault. But you'd expect McLaren and Renault to get ahead, which then puts Williams seventh. Then you've got the wild cards like, who knows what Sauber can do? You know, they, their budget's not that different to Williams and they've got the up-to-date engine, etc. So I'd probably, I'd agree with you, Ed. I think seventh is where we're going to end up uh, with Williams. And that wouldn't be, a, you know, with if McLaren and Renault move ahead, they couldn't be too disappointed. I think the interesting thing for Williams is development through the season because that is something that they really struggle with of late since 2014, I think, where they were very strong across the year. It's just gone downhill from there. So perhaps if they can turn those things around and they can do it aggressively through the year and they, you know, they've got at least they might have a, a good foundation now to to develop aggressively from that could change things. That's that's something we actually haven't touched on is that their correlation has been appalling, hasn't it? We saw them. Add, adding front, you know, d- doing the hokey cokey with components as they put them on, took them off, ran them on one car, didn't run them on the other car, which is a sure sign of a team struggling to replicate wind tunnel results on track. In fairness, I did put that to Paddy Lowe yesterday, and he he felt that was a little bit of an unfair interpretation. They did have that problem in one area, but he he argues that that their strike rate isn't 
that out of kilter with uh, with other teams. Make of that what you will. But what he did say was also crucial is they've got to deliver the potential of the car consistently. Far too much track-to-track variability. I think there's far too many question marks about whether the team operationally gets the most out of the car. And this goes back a few years now. So I think you're right, Lawrence, in that actually championship position is less important than, firstly, as Paddy Lowe said, where they are relative to the front. And then secondly, how they deliver on through-season development and consistency of performance. Because those are the things that will tell us whether Williams has at least put itself on a trajectory that could maybe, if they sustain it for year after year, gradually drag it drag it up the grid. But it, its natural position is, is not high. And like we say, if one of those three teams behind Haas, Saab, or Toro Rosso aces it, they could even be vulnerable there. And that's when the driver lineup really gets in. Because let, let's say Williams has exactly the same performance level and performance profile over the season as Renault, as Force India, as Sauber, as Toro Rosso, as Haas. Well, it's probably going to lose out to all of them because because of the driver lineup. Toro Rosso, Toro Rosso. can maybe make an argument about because I think Gasly's very good and he's got a lot of ability and Hartley's got good experience, but I think there's a bit of a question mark there. But how much faster does a Williams need to be than a Force India to beat them in the championship? Quite a bit, I would say. And I, I don't think that's very likely to happen. I think that would be dependent on Force India blundering. Also, in summary on Williams, I think, personally, I went to the launch fairly negative about their prospects. I probably came away from the launch a little bit more positive about the direction. I don't think they're going to be competing at the front or anything, but at least there seems to be a plan, doesn't there? Well, you'd hope so. As you said, this is a team that's had so many false dawns. When they came out in 2014 with the new martini colourway and a car that was decently quick, certainly almost best of the rest for most of the year. That did seem to be a new dawn. Uh, and unfortunately, the sun set very quickly on that. Um, I'm not sure if this is the complete reset that was required, but it could be the beginning of something. Um, yeah, I'd agree. I think they're at the start of this uh, another rebuild. And um, I think there are enough signs there to be positive going into the season. But as you say, Ed, I don't think they they will be thinking of making a massive step this year. But as long as they make little steps forward, in the greatest game, grand scheme of things, and I think that's a good thing. I think if you offered Paddy Lowe fifth place in the constructors now, he'd bite your arm off to sign on the dotted line on that one, maybe even six. You know, he knows how difficult it's going to be, but at least at least some reason to to keep a close eye on Williams and, and where they might be going. Now the other team that launched Lawrence was Huss. A series of renderings, there was no event attached to that. We haven't seen as much of the car. So what, if anything, have you learned from what you've seen of the VF18? Well, has played a blinder, actually, because they didn't say anything about their launch and then they just released the, these images uh, on social media. And, and Their plan their was definitely just to go ahead of everyone, wasn't it? Which yeah. is right, when you're, the, when you're fundamentally probably the least interesting team in terms of, of launch season because not much has changed there and it makes sense because it gets they get good coverage because people people are hung, hungry for news i've said that for the second successive podcast you were hungry in the last <laughs> hungry for news <laughs> yeah. it's it's true though isn't it there, there was the, there was an appetite and they serviced it because everyone was kind of holding their breath for williams thinking it was going to be the the first launch and has just sort of casually uh like, like a like a rock band that's been away for a few years just dropped an album as you must say in, in modern parlance they plopped it out there <laughs> straight away that rule that you must say that in modern parlance dropped an you album dropped an album you haven't been keeping up with the kids daddy-o <laughs> 
Well, Lawrence Barreto's always always uh, always up with the kids. So let's let's get back to the original Sorry. question. So what have we learned from the house other than they're quite PR savvy? Well, in in all honesty, very little. Um, from the renderings, it's very difficult to see. Um, to to glean much from it. Um, you can see from the quotes. I think from Gunter and from Jean, they talk about an evolution of the car, and I think they want consistency. I think we probably talk a lot about this word consistency throughout the year across all the teams. But Haas were very peaky last year. They had good races, and they just swung. But they were the probably way. the only team. Well, they were the only team more erratic than than Williams in that yes. regard. Um, and they were very open and said, we don't know why. We don't know what's going on. We don't understand why this is happening. Sometimes it would get into the window. Sometimes it wouldn't get into the window. So they've tried to address that. And that would be, you know, for a team now in their third year, that's the, the sense, most sensible thing that they can do is try and just settle everything down, give themselves this foundation that they've been working towards. Eighth in the first two years in F1 out of 10 is very good. So they've just got to keep on this kind of trajectory. They've had their difficult second album. Well, doing well in the second year was a, was a big question, so all credit to them for that. Uh, Gary Anderson, our technical expert, of course, the designer, the Jordan 191, uh, a technical director of, uh, of some note, he said that he was encouraged to see Haas come up with a very, very evolutionary car because, as Lawrence hinted at there, it's all about them getting the most out of their car. And a big part of that is going to be improving further their process of how they analyse the data, etc. they're getting back from the car because, you know, data is often presented as this catch-all answer to everything. The answer's in there, but it can be like looking for a few needles in a bunch of hay. You know, there's a lot of work to be done. You've got to know exactly what you're looking at and interpret it in the correct way to make very, very rapid conclusions. You know, at best, you've got overnight to work it out. And that's probably one of the reasons why often if Haas starts the weekend well, they tend to keep going well. But if they start badly, they're just a bit slower getting on top of it and that's just a, a question of being a, a more mature team so it's great they've got a car they should understand hopefully as long as nothing's gone wrong with it and that kind of removes one potential variable and that might allow them to be more consistent because they'll get a lot more out of finishing ninth and 10th regularly than getting a six one day and then being nowhere for, for six races. I would have been concerned if the car had looked radically different because that would have been a sign that they were panicking. Sometimes changes for changes' sake, isn't it? And that doesn't actually get you anywhere. So what are we expecting from Haas at the moment? Eighth the last two years? I imagine they would be pretty happy to hang on to, to eighth place, particularly with a resurgent Sauber and the possible potential of Toro Rosso and Honda to to, to make a make a better job of the season than maybe we were expecting. That back end of the grid is really, really difficult to read at the moment. I think their worry is Sauber and Ferrari in that relationship and how much how tighter it gets and how much you know, how much Ferrari want to put into that project because for the last couple of years, Haas have been, they don't like the term B team, but they've been Ferrari's number one customer. And so they've, they've had that luxury and I'm not so sure that's going to be the case this year. Um, so I think I think they'll be worried about the threat that Sauber poses. And it's another team, of course, that needs its drivers to deliver consistently. Roman Grosjean on his day is stunningly fast, but he needs to be consistent and learn that sometimes you've got to drive around problems a little bit. And Kevin Magnussen needs to be more consistent, improve qualifying. You know, he's capable of turning in some fantastic drives. Mexican Grand Prix drive was one of the best drives anyone delivered over the season. And I want to see that that Kevin Magnussen every week rather than just sort of every now and again. Yeah, that, that that is the weird thing about the Haas driver lineup, isn't it? That you have uh, K-Mag, who has speed and bravery in abundance, but it's not always switched on. 
And then you have Grosjean, who, if he were a rugby player, he'd be one of those ones who's always waving their arms at the ref. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's uh, there's a question mark for them. And it's, it's interesting in that sort of battle towards the back of the grid, there's lots of drive lineups with question marks and good potential. But that's that's going to have a that's going to have a, a big impact on on who ends up where in kind of seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth. So that's an interesting little subplot to look forward to for the season. But we've got plenty more launches to to look forward to. We've got Red Bull, Renault, Sauber coming up next week. And, of course, the first test kicks off in Barcelona on February the 26th. Of course, you can follow all the latest launches, news, testing, etc. on autosport.com. Check out our plus subscriber area where you can read in-depth features. Currently, we've got Gary Anderson's analysis of the of the Haas and of the Williams there. We've got an interview with Paddy Lowe about the car. We've got Adam Cooper on the, on the Haas team's aspirations for the year so there's plenty to get your teeth into there also check out autosport magazine out every thursday we'll have in-depth looks at the williams and the and the Haas and, and the other cars that are launched uh, next thursday and the current issue uh, is a as a look at the the big questions to be answered in in f1 this season also f1 racing magazine with some lovely williams action on the cover so thanks very much for joining us we'll be back soon with another autosport podcast <laughs>
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.